Uh, I'll be confessional. This week has been a great week of preparation and a terrible week of preparation uh, because I've simply felt convicted over this text. Uh, I was supposed to preach a few more verses, uh, and that just didn't happen, and I'm not so sure I'm even going to get to everything that God has laid upon my heart, even in just these two verses. But, as you should recall from last week, whether you were here or maybe you listened to it on uh, online like I did, Pastor Todd did a great job. He was preaching through a very familiar text. This is one that, if you've been in church much at all in your life, you have probably heard, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. This is something we've all kind of heard before. And sometimes I think the text can become too familiar, especially for someone like Pastor Todd who's read his Bible a couple thousand times all the way through and just becomes familiar. So sometimes when you're preaching that or even hearing that, you're like, yeah, we've heard this before. And I thought he did a great job of pulling out the truth there, but sometimes we just gloss over it. We read it and we think, yeah, of course Paul finished the race. He's Paul. Of course Paul fought the good fight. He's Paul. Of course he did. But sometimes we forget what it took for him to be able to say that and to be able to honestly pin those words. The beatings, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, all of the hardships he had to go through so that he could say truthfully, man, I fought the good fight. It was hard. It was difficult. I didn't always want to do it. And yet God has kept me faithful. He had to endure all of this to receive the crown of righteousness that he is looking forward to in verse 8. But you know what else we we seem to gloss over and we almost never really take into consideration? There seems to be not one even sliver of regret in anything that he's saying. In this book or any of the other books. Because here's the thing. He could be saying, man, if only I had done a little something different, it wouldn't have been sinful, wouldn't have been wrong, wouldn't have been unfaithful, but I could have avoided that one beating. Or I could have avoided that one shipwreck if I just stayed where I was. Or I could have avoided this. It could have been at least a little bit easier. There's no, man, I missed out on so much the world has to offer because I was always in prison or I was always doing this or I was always doing what God wanted me to do. And I didn't get to see Italy or I didn't get whatever. I didn't get to see wherever you want to go. Think of someone you dying off to go and you never get to go there if you're living with regret. There's no none of that in Paul. It's almost as if he's reminiscing. Like, I just went on vacation and I'm going to remember those moments, remember those times, mainly because my wife took 4,367 pictures and they're all on Facebook, in case anybody wants to see. But she's not here, I can make fun. So, I'm going to remember those. That seems to be what Paul's doing. He is remembering these times, like, I have fought the good fight when it was hard. I have fought the good fight for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. And I wouldn't change a bit of it. And he's saying to Timothy, it's worth it, Timothy. Fight the good fight, Timothy. It is worth it for the glory of God. Do not shy away from this. Because here's the thing is one could, one wouldn't blame Paul if he did that. If he sent this letter and was like, hey, just so you know, if you do this, this, and this, it's going to end up this way. But if you do it this way, you skirt the issue, you navigate this way, you, you navigate culture a different way, maybe it won't happen for you the exact same way. Because this is how we treat our kids, right? We make mistakes, some of us more than others. We'll go into that this Sunday. But we've all made mistakes. And we look at our kids and we're like, man, I don't want them to have to learn the same lessons the same way that I did. Hopefully, what? They learn from my mistakes, right? Nothing wrong with that. 
No, actually, it's encouraged. I hope our kids do learn from our mistakes so they don't have to go through the same troubles and trials that we did. <clears throat> you don't find that in Paul's writings. You don't find that do it differently and maybe you won't go to jail. Do it differently and maybe this, that, and the other. He's saying, no, Timothy. It's most likely going to end the same way for you, bro. It's going to end the same way for you. You're going to end up in a jail cell or executioner's block. But do it. Do it anyway. It is worth it. Paul knows all the more. He is about to see firsthand just how worth it it has all been. He knows he is about to die. And this is the encouragement we can get from these verses. But sometimes we read them and we forget what comes next. We forget that. We think that Paul is somehow shielded from emotional pain. Or, or maybe it didn't hurt so bad when he got beat. Or it, Of course Paul made it through. I don't know that I can do that, but of course Paul made it through great super apostle. Of course, he met Jesus face to face in a supernatural way on the Damascus Road. Of course, he was encouraged to do this. But then you read the next verse. Just listen to the pain and the loneliness. Not just in this verse, but in this whole section of Scripture that we'll cover this weekend next. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. Please come see me. Please come visit me. I'm about to die, and I'm having to beg people to come visit me. It's almost sad that a man whose life was marked by selfless living, find me somewhere, I'm sure he did, but find me somewhere in Scripture where Paul did anything really selfishly or just for him or not for someone else. And now at the end of his life, his closest friend, his son in the face, he's basically having to beg, please come see me soon. You're going to run out of time if you don't. Please come see me soon. And I just want to tell you confessionally from my short stint of experience, ministry, and I don't just mean as a pastor, and I don't just mean as a vocation, ministry with people can be a lonely place. When you genuinely try to minister to people, I know people in this room that sponsor people in AA and, and try to point them to Jesus falling off. I know people that for some reason, their neighbors just knock on their door all the time with crazy story after crazy story, and their goal is to point them to Jesus. But you know what? Sometimes it makes it a lonely place because it's like, nobody understands what I'm going through. This person's not getting it. I've poured and poured and poured and poured and poured into this person, and look what they're doing, or look where they're going, or they're, it's like they're not listening to me. You care about people. You know secrets about people that you wish you didn't know, that you can't tell anybody, where are you going to unload those things at? So it's all of these things. You cry over them, you implore them, you pray over them, and then they just go. Or they don't listen. Or they literally do the, your advice is this from Scripture, ah, do this. And they just go the complete and utter opposite way, and you're like, what am I doing? Why do I even try? You ask yourself crazy questions like, did God... 70 times 7, that's 490. So, uh, yeah, he, no, he's about there. Like, he's almost there. I've kept count. He's at 489. One more time and I can cut this thing off. Or maybe he meant that figuratively and 490 really means 5. And I'm done with you because you've offended me 6 times and I'm out. See, we question Jesus. He says he will always be with me. We would never say it out loud, but we think things like, I don't feel like you're with me now. Because all these people are turning on me or all these people are changing their minds. If you are truly engaging in the ministry of the word, then you will inevitably 
have moments of loneliness, just like Paul is having here. Physically, because people are coming to see him, but also just mentally and emotionally, he is struggling through this. He wants his friends to come visit. He knows the end of his life. What does he desire? Money? No. Freedom? Not really. Not even really begging to get out of jail. He just wants real relationships. Because that's where he, he knows his true wealth is found, is in relationships. He knows it's in Christ. He's made that clear in the verses previous. But secondarily to that, secondarily to that, he wants real relationships with the people that he loves. No strings, no tasks, no, come we'll have this conference before I die and we'll send you out. Just come see me. Just come visit me. Spend some time with me. And then in the next verse, we specifically see why he is so lonely. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. These are strong words, first of all. Deserted. He didn't just leave. He didn't just wander off, whoopsie-daisy, and now he's lost and he doesn't know how to get back. He deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. So I used to watch this show. I don't anymore, not for any kind of super spiritual reasons. I just grew out of it. But I know everybody's heard of it called The Walking Dead. Used to watch it all the time. At the beginning, when it was actually really, really good. Now, eh. But it was really good at the beginning. I used to watch it. My wife would watch it with me. But it got a bit too much. Zombie attacks and this, that, and the other. And then finally she was like, you know what? You just watch that by yourself. I, I'm not going to watch it. So I kept watching it. She kept having these dreams. Like when my wife dreams, like it must be like as real as we're sitting here right now. Because she'll wake up and she'll tell me every detail. I wake up and I'm like, I slept like really good. Like you don't remember any of your dreams? No. And the, five, the few times where I remember even bits and pieces, it makes such little sense. I'm like, well, I was walking in the forest and this dragon, and then, and then I was on the couch. And I don't, I don't know. She can tell you every detail. So she was having these dreams, so she stopped watching it. I didn't get it because it never affects me that way. I've never once had a zombie dream that I can think of. However, after reading this text, I know exactly what she's talking about. Because these six words, in love with this present world has haunted me for two weeks. I wake up thinking about it. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. I go to bed thinking about it. I go through my day thinking about it. I go, not go off, but I impromptu had a program living meeting with everyone in the house and was like, look, I got to get this off my chest. I got to say something about it. Had a meeting about it. Every sense of the word, it has haunted me. It has made, my, made me ask myself some really difficult questions. It has made me pray some really difficult prayers. I've made some really flimsy justifications, I'll just be honest with you. Some really flimsy ones about why eh, I'm not in love with the present world because of that. That's different. Made me literally ignore God this week. Like, I just don't even want to read your word because I know it's true, and it's going to make me realize what I'm thinking isn't true. So if I just don't read it, I get to keep living my lies. I get to keep living my justifications. But this is why I can come to you and I didn't know how many people were going to be here today. I haven't counted. I don't really care. This is why you can just as passionately preach to two people as you can to 2,000 people is because, man, this is what I need to hear today. I hope it's what you guys need to hear. I really, really do. And I hope it really changes us. I hope we go out of this place We'll get to that. 
But this is why I can speak as if the room is full and that everyone is hearing me is because this is what God has been doing in my heart. So, this is not the first time we've heard of Demas. Quickly, look at verse 11, which we're not going to get to today, but it says, what does it say? Uh, Demas is in love with his present world, deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me, okay? So, the only reason we reference that is because Luke alone is remaining faithful to me. He is still here with me. Now, if you would, you don't have to turn there, but Colossians chapter 4, verse 14 is where we're going. You don't have to turn there. But it, in that verse, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. This is Paul at the end of all his letters. He kind of gives these shout-outs, right? And so many times, what do we do? Ignore them. We read over them because it's like, Paul's like, so-and-so said, what's up? Like, hit me back on my two-way, like whatever. Some of you are like, what's a two-way? I don't even really know. I just remember the commercials. Anyway, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Clearly a nod to Demas being a faithful friend, the beloved physician. And then he groups Demas with him. There's no period there. It's a comma. Groups them together. Philemon, verse 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. One, again he groups Demas in with faithful Luke. And we'll see next week, faithful Mark. I don't know enough about Aristarchus to make a comment. But we see him also call him a fellow worker, a co-laborer in the gospel. Paul gives lots of shout-outs in his ministry. He does not do any of them flippantly. He doesn't just, ah, oh, yeah, friends of mine, whatever. He, this is the word of God. There is a reason they are in there. And he shouts out Demas twice before this moment. Now, most historians, almost all actually date both Colossians and Philemon as being written around the same time, 62 A.D. Most, if not all, date 2 Timothy around 64 or 65, or maybe a little bit later, but definitely after those other two books. This means that the man we're talking about, Demas, went from being led by, discipled by, commissioned by, and commended by Paul himself in a couple short years to being in love with this present world. He was following Paul. Other than Jesus, who better to disciple you than the Apostle Paul? And in two years, we go from Demas, my fellow co-laborer, he, he, I commend him to you, he sends his greetings. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Now we don't know exactly what that means for Demas. I am not saying Demas wasn't a Christian, isn't a Christian, didn't become a Christian later. This is not a turn or burn kind of sermon because you might end up like Demas. But the connotation of being in love with the world, not one time in all of Scripture, is anything but overtly negative. Easiest example, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, of the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It does not take a biblical theologian, a biblical expert to exegete that passage. Do not 
love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I don't have to stand up here and explain to you what that means. But we see here in just a few short years, Demas is already thrown in the towel. We see in a few short years he has decided that this life that Paul is calling him to, that Jesus is calling him to, is not worth it. He's not fighting the good fight any longer. He's not running the race any longer. He's quitting. He's loving the world. He's seen Paul shackled and imprisoned one time too many, and he's out. I'm done. I've made my decision, and the world has something better to offer me. I'm going this way. Now, it does not seem to state here, no one, none of the commentaries or anything that I've read seems to state that he has defiantly left the faith. Like, I hate Jesus. I, I can't stand anything you stand for, Paul. I'm out. It was just, I love the world more. This is easier. This is better. It's too much of a cost to me personally and to the people I care about to see all of this happening. It is too much of a cost I'm going to go to the world that does not require such a cost. We see this in Luke 14, 28 through 30. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. In regards to that scripture, John Stott, who wrote one of the classics of Christianity, called Basic Christianity, says this says, the entire Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. All too many people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become a little bit involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its shape to suit their convenience. I don't know exactly what year that was written, but it was years ago. How much more this is true now in American church, in Western church, in so many places. And we think it's a new development, but this is what we see here happening to Demas. It would seem that he desired for Christianity to offer him a soft place to land, and instead it was the cause of his need for a soft place to land. It was the cause of all the hard things that were happening to him. I don't know about Demas's life, but it probably wasn't nearly as bad before Christ as when he's following after Paul and getting put in prison or having to at least visit Paul in prison and all of these things. He wanted a soft place to land and Jesus offered him no such soft place. And there are far, far too many Christians that we come in contact daily. How many people do you really know that if you said, are you a Christian, that would be like, no, I am not a Christian. Very few. Most of them would hem-haw around and be like, yeah, well, I, mean, I grew up in church, or my grandfather was a pastor, or this, that, or the other. But very few are defiantly, no, I am not a Christian. If they had to check a box on a list, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, atheism, by process of elimination, they're not an atheist, 
and they're definitely not a Muslim, and they don't know what these other ones mean, I'll check Christian. Why not? Because I don't know any other thing to pick. Then you go ask them in person, are you a Christian? They think back to a checked box. What do they say? Sure. But they've concocted a Jesus of their own desires, a soft, cushiony Jesus. They've rejected the Jesus of the Bible. They've invented a faith of their own to make them feel better about themselves so that they can go, well, I saved when I was 10. What'd you do after that? Nothing. I go to church on Christmas and Easter. Oh, really? You celebrate the birth of the Savior of the entire universe and the resurrection that proved he was the Savior of the entire universe. And what do you do the next day? Nothing. Huh. That's interesting. Seems like awfully big news you're celebrating today to do nothing on the next day, right? Cultural Christianity is rampant in places where you are most free to do whatever you want. You don't see this in persecuted places. That very freedom that we celebrate here has caused so many to believe a false gospel that has the exact same saving power as no gospel at all. But here's the thing, is many times cultural Christianity looks the part. They believe in God, they vote Republican, they show up to church almost every week. They're pro-life for sure. They raise their kids to be nice and respectful. They pray before dinner. <laughs> Duh. They're baptized. So are their kids. They own Bibles. They may even know a few scriptures here and there. They admire Jesus. But they don't worship Jesus. In other words, they look like Demas. They work like Demas worked. They pray like Demas prayed. There may be people that know Jesus because they know this person. That's their connection point. And this person really saved. And the connection point, not so much. Demas probably had that in his life. See, when the rubber really meets the road, an admirer leaves, a worshiper stays. When Jesus stops being the means to your own ends, to our own ends, an admirer will find someone or something to admire that will meet those ends when Jesus does not. And here's where I'm haunted. All week, for two weeks actually. What if I, the very man who's passionately calling you not to be a Demas today, is a Demas? What if I just looked the part where I'm serving a Jesus of my own imagination? I think I got the right one, but I, I'm concocting a Jesus that is... I'm going to hold to a standard that he's never promised to uphold. Or what if I'm resting on my laurels, but Jesus, I'm a pastor, but Jesus, I, I work with addicts and alcoholics at Hope House five days a week. And he's going to Matthew 7 me and be like, who are you? Because I don't, I don't know you. What if I'm admiring Jesus and not worshiping Jesus, even right here in this moment, preaching about him? And I fall back in love with the world one day. And there's a writing about me. Justin, in love with this present world, has deserted Mission Church. And it's easy. It's easy for me to reassure myself with pithy statements, but uh, flimsy justifications and scriptures that I know are true. Todd brought them up last week. No one will snatch them out of, them, out of his hand. Who does that apply to? Everyone that's really in his hand, right? Not the ones that think they're in, their, in his hand. Those people don't need to be snatched out of his hand. They're already out of it. What if I'm over here? Because there are other scriptures that are also true, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out 
that it might become plain that they are not all of us. 1 John 2.19. What if that's me? Because I'm willing to bet that at some point Demas thought he was firmly in the grips of Jesus. And he would firmly, if that scripture had been written at the time, been like, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That definitely applies to me. And here, the last thing we know written about this man is that he had deserted the Apostle Paul because he was in love with this present world. And as convinced as I am, as convinced as he might have been, I also look around the world and I go, well, that person's really convinced and that ain't even true about themselves. Am I delusional? Am I thinking things that aren't true about myself? I, <laughs> I've been a mess, guys. I read David Platt's new book in like two days. It's excellent, by the way. If you haven't read it, if you want to borrow mine, have at it. But it makes you really wonder, which he has a tendency to do, <laughs> makes you really wonder if you're doing enough or if, you, if God is really calling you to do more with your life. Because I think that's pretty much the answer that is always yes. He's always calling us to do more. But if I'm unwilling to do that for any reason whatsoever... But Jesus, this, that, or the other. But Jesus, this, that, or the It literally doesn't matter. Does that not imply that I'm in love with this present world more than what God is calling me to do? Does that not mean I love the world more than Christ? These are the things that have kept me awake at night. Now I'm finishing up a book. It's called The Unsaved Christian about nominal Christianity. It's almost like God's in control of things. Made me read these books together. But I'm like, am I nominal? Am I a cultural Christian? Where's my fruit? Where's my Timothy? Where are the people that will be in the kingdom of God at some point in the future, whenever that may be, because of the way God used me? Or is God not using me because I'm not a tool in His hand? You see, salvation is not simply getting to fly up in the sky and float around on clouds with a harp and a diaper on. Or whatever. It can, it does, and it should have real consequences in you now and in the people around you now. This is not, well, I hope something happens in the future. No, now, in the moment, in the present. We are saved by faith. 100%, end of sentence, full stop. We are saved by faith, but we live by faithfulness continuing to be faithful, continuing to reassure ourselves that this faith we claim is true, not a one-time thing, not sometimes, not when it's convenient, not when it offers a soft cushion to land on, always. Salvation, being saved, is not a one-time decision or a one-time event. You get wet one time, you leave, you dry off, and nothing has changed other than you got wet. It's a lifetime commitment, a commitment to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. And that means going and doing what he calls us to do, no matter what the consequences may be. Thank you, Paul. We are devoting our lifelong, think of the word instead of faith. And I'm not saying always insert this word. But if you are living by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. It is not by this blind uh, whatever, I don't know, I'll figure it out. No, it is live by faithfulness. Insert the word allegiance there. Our allegiance is to Christ. Our allegiance is to Him always. So that we will see 
that it is worth it no matter what it costs me over here. We are devoting our lifelong allegiance to Christ. That may mean our allegiance is cut short because your head is chopped off. Or you go to prison and you have to be allegiant to Christ there instead of out here. And you're thinking, well, that would never happen in America. First of all, I'm not so sure that it won't in our lifetimes. And two, maybe that means you don't live in America. Maybe that means you give up the comforts, the soft cushion. Because let's be honest, America's a soft cushion for the most of us. Maybe we leave the soft cushion and we go somewhere where they don't even know what the word cushion means. Maybe we go somewhere that these things that happened to Paul could happen to us. See, I wonder, and I don't know, I hope that Demas went out into the world and quickly was like, oh, <laughs> not what I thought, and went back to Jesus. That this was a prodigal moment and not a damnation moment that he realized that the world had to offer or what the world had to offer did not bring ultimate fulfillment like he thought it would but that Jesus would bring the fulfillment of those things you think the things of this world while shiny and beautiful and some of them are awesome and should be celebrated as awesome do not ultimately fulfill there's a line in the movie Fight Club you know great theologian movie there Brad Pitt says, the things you own end up owning you. You didn't know the Bible was in there, huh? See, even more than not offering true freedom, the world actually becomes the slave owner. These are the sex traffickers promising young girls a better life out of your poverty. We'll, we'll solve your poverty problem. Only to realize that the life they now live is worse than the poverty they were there trying to escape. It's a slave owner. This is the addict Man, I just want to live my life. Who are you to tell me how to live? Just let me live my life. Now, wishing they could escape the reality they find themselves in. And the only escape that they can find is what put them in the reality they're trying to escape. It becomes a slave owner. Started out as fun, slave owner. And you are thinking, yeah, I'm not a drug addict and I'm not a sex trafficker. This is the middle class man who wants to provide better opportunities for his kids. So he works, and he works, and he works, and he works, and he works. He doesn't take care of himself. He doesn't eat right. And the kids grow up with better opportunities, but no daddy because he had a heart attack at 45. Because the things in this world are really shiny, and I want to give those to my kids. Or the doctor who makes all kinds of money, builds a house that's way too big for his wife and two kids. That's way too big. How do you pay for that? You work 24 hours a day. What does your wife do? Finds another man. That's there. That's present. And you think, well, that's closer. I'm not a drug addict, but I do work a lot. Or I do these things a lot. Example after example where the world has become the slave owner. And we think we're above it. It's never happened to us. I love Jesus. It's never happened to us. We think, no way. And yet, I tell the guys at Program Living all the time, if God removes his grace from my life at 855, by quitting time today, I could ruin my entire life by making decisions for me selfishly because I love the world and not Jesus if God removes his grace from me. Too many times to count. We act like Demas and we fall back in love with the world temporarily or permanently. This is why places that you look at on the map where you think there's no way Christianity would work there is where it's exploding. Why though? Because they're honest. They're honest. They tell people, 
we love Jesus. We think you should love Jesus. It may cost you your livelihood, your safety, your family, and quite possibly your life. But it's worth it. It will be worth it in the end. It may not be worth it today. Stop looking at today. It may be worth, not worth it tomorrow. Stop looking at tomorrow. Do not fall in love with the world. Fall in love with the one who has overcome the world. Quote I read from... About, <laughs> you're lucky this whole sermon is not about the church in Iran. Because uh, I've watched the documentary. We'll get to that. A quote I read about the Christian church in Iran, though. Which, by the way, fastest growing church in the world. Iran. One or two on the list of most persecuted place to be a Christian. What per, this quote. What persecution did was destroy the church that were not disciples and destroy the church that were about converts. All these church planners found out that converts run away from persecution, but disciples will die for the Lord in persecution. So our motto in Iran is not to convert to then disciple. We disciple so we can convert. Now look at the American church, churning out converts, all these churches bragging, we got this many baptisms, we got this many converts, we got this many decisions for salvation, we did a revival and God showed up as if we could just call him down one, one month in July and say, well, it's revival time, Jesus. But they don't stand, they can't even stand against a negative opinion, much less an executioner's blade. And then look at places like China and Iran, churning out disciples and not converts. Why? Because they've counted the cost and they found what the world is offering. It's not that great. But they found what Jesus is offering is all satisfying. Making disciples means we tell the truth. We tell people about obedience. We tell people about faithfulness to the gospel. We tell them it will, not maybe, it will cost them something. The ones that God saves will not care about the cost. The ones that care about the cost, God won't save. Who are we to decide who that is? We just go tell the truth. We just go tell the truth. And we don't go, but they may deny it and they'll turn away from the faith forever. They were going to do that anyway. If you telling them the truth about something makes them run, they were going to run because they were going to find out the truth at some point. Here's the thing though. Because we're all thinking about people in our lives, right? Oh, I know a bunch of cultural Christians. I know a bunch of nominal Christians. My question is not today who are you being honest with about this my question today is are you being honest with yourself about this that's the question I've had to ask myself for two weeks now because if so okay if you're sitting there going yes I'm being honest with myself about this then what has it cost you because if you're claiming Christ but also gaining the whole world I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying what that means you decide that but it says here it's going to cost us. It says here, Demas in love with the present world, which means it's mutually exclusive to be in love with the world and Jesus. There's no, let's mingle these two things together. You may have one foot in and one foot out. Jesus would tell you that means both feet are out. So how do you know? Am I a nominal Christian? Are you a nominal Christian? Am I more in love with the world than I am Christ? Four quick things. One, do you, do I, have a true and abiding love for the Lord and His church? This means do you truly desire to be in the body of Christ, not just attending one, and I don't even mean mission church, the church, the global church, 
This is what Jesus is coming back to get. The global church. His bride. One entity with a bunch of people in it. Are you willing to serve and selflessly give of yourself and your time, your talent, your treasure in order to more and more and more people to see the body of Christ for what it truly is? A family. A body of Christ. A family who sacrifices for one another. Charles Spurgeon once said, Oh, it is one thing to attend to religion, but another thing to be in Christ Jesus. It is one thing to have your name upon the church book, but quite another thing to have it written in the Lamb's book of life. He always says it better than I do. Do you truly wish to plant churches and multiply this movement of Christ globally because you love Jesus so much? And you may be sitting there thinking, I'm not a church planner. Okay, another quote from that documentary. If you plant churches, you might make disciples. If you make disciples, you will plant churches. Wow. Because <laughs> we think we got to have this, this, this. we got to go over there. we got to have money. we got to do this. we got to do this, do this. You know how many buildings the church in Iran have? Not one. Not a single building where they all gather together. Not in Iran anyway. Iran. Whatever. They have to travel across a border or secretly, and I mean like suit, like this would have been way too many lights in a basement somewhere so that no one finds them out. Do you love the Lord this much that you are going? Because here's the thing is if, if there was even one guard circling this building, we'd have even less people here today because we'd all be like, well, they're going to catch me. Okay, do you love the Lord enough to gather with his bride no matter the cost, no matter what you have to go through, no matter the consequences. Two, is your life marked by repentance? John Calvin once said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. This is what separates us from non-believing sinners. You get that, right? Because am I the only sinner still in here? Like, I'm saved, but I sin? Okay. Apparently, no one else raised their hand. But the, <laughs> this is what separates us, though, is how do we respond when that happens? Because should we sin less than the non-believer? Sure, I, I, I guess, of course. We should be more obedient. Yes, absolutely. But more importantly, how do we respond when we do? Do we turn away from our sin and beg for the mercy and the forgiveness of God? Or do we go, that was kind of fun. I could probably get away with that again. No one really even knows I did it the first time. What we do in the dark always comes to the light. Do we genuinely hate sin? Get this. Not because of the present effects it has. So not because it destroys your family. Not because you lose your job. Not because it costs you money. But do you genuinely hate sin because it defames the name of God? Are you sincerely repentant? Or are you seeking comfort? A soft cushion to land on. Because if your answer is comfort, it may be that you're in love with the present world. Three, are you eternally minded? I can assure you at this point, Demas was not. Do you focus more on the here and now? Or do you focus more uh, with eternity in mind for yourself and for others? Is that really what's more important? I read a story this week about a Christian couple from a Muslim-dominated country. They were persecuted, persecuted, persecuted. They moved to America. A couple months after they move, the wife goes to the husband and goes, I want to go back. And he was like, uh, do you, 
do you know where we're from? Um, persecution, everyone was like, why do you want to go back? <laughs> here is her response, quote, There is a satanic lullaby here. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. She deemed that persecution to her faith, possible death for her faith, was a lesser threat than simply being sleepy in it. Just going through the motions. Just being a cultural Christian. I'm a good person. I'm this. I'm that. And they said, but if you're found out, you may spend the rest of your life in prison. What, quote, what is 50 years in prison compared to an eternity with Jesus? Hebrews 13, 13 through 14 says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Talking about Jesus. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Are you eternally minded or are you sleepy? Four. Do you have a true and abiding love and care for the lost? While I've been talking across the globe, I don't have a number, but lots of people have died and entered into a conscious, forever, eternal torment in hell. Some because they never even had a chance to hear about Jesus. Some because they had chance after chance after chance after chance. My question is, do you care? Do I care? Or is this just a sermon point? Do I really care that someone, maybe I don't know, but someone I know knows them, or someone that close to you has died today and will never sense, never feel, never have the love of Jesus touch them ever again? A self-centered, presently-minded, non-repentant person looks at that and goes, but what will it cost me to go to that person? They've already ridiculed me once. Won't they just ridicule me again? Maybe. How will this affect my life? And you will in turn do nothing because it could cost you something like your precious house or your precious friends or your family or central heat and air. Man, I can't give that up. They don't have that in Iran. They don't have that in Malaysia or Yemen. My safety could be at stake. I have kids. I can't think of any. I can't think of anything I could say to Nora that would make the gospel more real than she sees me die for it. And I don't want to die. I really don't. I don't have a death wish. I'm not driving on the other side of the interstate hoping somebody will hit me. There's a documentary on YouTube. You've heard me talk about it a bunch of times already. Again, you're lucky that more of the sermon didn't revolve around that. So if too much did, hold your horses. It's called, it's on YouTube. It's free, literally. I, watch it. This, that's a command from your pastor. Just go watch it. It's called Sheep Among Wolves. It's about the Iranian church, how it is growing faster than any other place on the planet right now. The very beginning of it has an Iran Iranian woman speaking. Her face is blurred and her voice is distorted. So no one can find out who she is. And she says, and I quote, that she knows that if she is found evangelizing about Jesus, they won't just kill her. They will capture her, repeatedly rape her until she is used up, and then they will kill her and any of her family that they can find. She knows this. And then she says, but I have a deal with my husband, who is also a believer, that if we go out for the day and one of us does not return, that we do not cry, we praise God. 
because I was found out to be faithful to the end. Now, fast forward to that documentary. There's another story. This girl grew up in a family, military dad, Muslim dad, atheist mom. Her dad retired from the military, went into business with another guy. This guy came, started coming to the house to do business. She was five. He began raping her. She was scared to tell anyone because you don't tell that over there. Her mom finds out. She raises a big stink about it. Her, what is her dad's response? He began to regularly beat her for defaming the man's name. And continued to do business with him. And he continued to come to the house. And he continued to rape her. She became a teenager. The raping stopped. She was depressed. She was on a slew of medications for depressions. They were not working at all. She tried to take her own life with those depression pills five different times every time she was saved. So she decided, I will hang myself. So she tied the noose. She got up on the table, and right before she jumped, she said, God, if you are real, I want to physically touch you. And she jumped off the table. She said that when she did, everything went black for what she thought was four seconds. But she could see and feel herself riding on the shoulders of Jesus. In her words, just like a child that loves his father. And I always wanted to do that with my father. Then she heard Jesus say that he would always protect her. And he quoted Psalm 91 to her. A woman who's never read the Bible was quoted supernaturally, word for word, Psalm 91. She awoke on her bed, bruises all around her neck, and the noose was opened, not broken. So this was not a whoopsie-daisy the rope didn't hold. Opened on the floor beside her. Half of the people in this room are probably like, yeah, well, I mean, she had a dream. And the other half, hopefully, are like, she met Jesus. Because we try to explain these things away here in America. We try to say, well, the rope didn't hold, or the fan broke off the ceiling, or it couldn't have been actual Jesus, as if Paul didn't encounter Jesus this exact same way. Why would he stop doing that in places where that's basically the only way it's going to happen because no one is going? Now, because that's our response. Well, the rope, eh. what was her response? That's what you can really judge it off of. She says she was there. She says she saw this. Well, then what happened? She now goes forth and proclaims the gospel everywhere she goes. She risks being raped Remember what will happen if she's found out. The very thing she wanted to kill herself over is what she goes out and risks. She doesn't take her pills anymore. She doesn't need them. In order to make the name of Jesus go forth and make disciples, she risks that. Why? Because she loves the Jesus who saved her and she loves the people she is around enough to tell them about the Jesus that saved her. It might be awkward. I'd say so in Iran. It might get me ridiculed. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I said ridiculed. I meant raped and murdered and your family murdered. 
And what does she say? It's worth it. Now ask yourself, do I have a true and abiding love for the lost? Or am I offering cheap grace? God will cover your sins. Cheap grace is the bitter enemy of true discipleship. You don't have to do anything. God's grace has got it. God's grace does have it if you're in it. And if you're in it, you won't go, God's grace has got it. That's a sure sign. This woman looked square in the face of Jesus Christ. She saw him and the things of this world. We tried as hard as we could to sing this song. But the things of this world grew strangely dim. I do not care about that stuff. The old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So you ask yourself today, have I truly seen this Jesus? And if I claim to have, what now? Because if your life goes back to complete and utter normal the next day after you've seen, if she had woken up from trying to hang herself, I saw Jesus, he quoted Psalm 91, and then nothing changed, I'd be like, you saw something else. You can't encounter Jesus that way and go on living your life the same way the next day. You just can't. And she didn't. And we shouldn't. So if you claim to have seen Jesus, how can you live as though it is true? You see, the true Jesus died to save you from your sins and your half-heartedness. The true Jesus rose again to win victory over his own death, but also yours, so that then you could go live life and not fear death. It's the greatest gift somebody could give you if they kill you today. You see Jesus face to face today. Therefore, he deserves our lives. He deserves our everything. The cross of Christ, listen to this. The cross of Christ literally changed the course of history for the world. Why do you think, why do I think I just got to change a few things about myself? It changed, we tell time, today is 2019 A.D. Based upon what happened on the cross one day, and I go, but if I give them two hours of my time on Sunday, I should be good. Okay, try that out, Demas. Jesus gave his everything. We don't get to give some. True biblical, the true biblical Jesus deserves it all and he will settle for nothing less John Stott wrote he asked his first disciples and he has asked every disciple since to give him their thoughtful and total commitment nothing less will do Jesus if you are not for me you are against me see how there's two categories there there's not a third I'm pretty much for him if today makes you realize that you are riding the fence and you need to truly devote your life to Jesus I rejoice in that if today just reassured you that you are in Christ and nothing will ever change that, I rejoice in that. But let's begin asking the hard questions. What more can I do? What more are you calling me to do? How can I have a true and abiding love for you, the church, and the lost? The only way this sermon is a failure is if in any way it allows you to remain in this gray cultural Christian area of your life and you just keep on living life the same way you did yesterday. Thinking you're good enough is good enough. For the king and creator of the universe, who also then gave his everything to save you when you did not deserve it. Let's reach for something more and let's settle for nothing less. 
And then let's begin praying that God would move in our lives to make us useful to Him and to truly count for the eternal kingdom, not this present kingdom we live in now. Let's pray.